You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome to the Weekend World Show at the Voice of Islam. Uh, it is Sunday, the 9th of October, 2022. The time is now coming up to, well, it's just gone 10.04. Um, this is Arsene Hamdi's Weekend World Show, except Mr. Arsene Hamdi is not with us. He's on a well-earned holiday. Uh, we'll be back next time. So until then, uh, I'm afraid our listeners will have to bear with us. Uh, myself, Walid Ahmed, and Saif Ahmadi. Uh, listen to the Voice of Islam on uh, uh, DAB radio. You can do that. Uh, or uh, mobile and online, uh, 24 hours a day, broadcasting live from Bethlehem Mosque in Morden. The Weekend World Show is a current affairs show, um, and uh, it carries uh, the week's news, views, and reviews from a faith and non-faith perspective promoting the message of peace and unity, discussing religion, politics, sports, and uh, topics of faith and enlightenment, uh, a message of Islam for the West. And uh, do join us uh, and share your views or stories. Uh, you can do that by phoning in 0208-687-7878, or you can tweet us on Voice of Islam UK. Uh, the views on the Weekend World Show are those of the individuals and guests. Um, now, uh, what normally happens uh, when uh, Asa Nahmadi is here, he usually picks up a quote uh, from, uh, well, uh, from one of the books, and uh, we uh, um, muse over it. Uh, so, uh, in uh, keeping with that tradition, uh, we picked up uh, this quote from... Uh, the number one New York Times best-selling author, coach, and speaker. His name is John C. Maxwell, and he said this about leadership. He said, a leader is one who knows the way, goes the way, and shows the way. Uh, Saf, what's your thoughts on that? I think currently, under the, is, under is some, current circumstances, I think it's uh, more pertinent than ever. I think. Yes. Um, Are we in short supply? Oh, well, I, th- I believe. <laughs> mm-hmm. I think we'll probably discuss it in uh, further detail, sort of down the line. But I think um, if you look at the current situation, and mm. if you look at the current, um, I would say particularly when you're UK focused, <laughs> yeah. I would say that there is a current. Um, uh, th- there's an issue in that yeah. department, I would say. Okay, uh, I'm sure I'm sure many would agree with that. Um, anyway, on with the show. Um, uh, what do we have in store then uh, today? So, um, yep, we're as per normal, as per the um, normal running order, we'll be discussing some of the key stories of the week. Uh, again, just uh, no guessing what the main story is going to be. Um, you, we've seen dramatic slumps in the polls for the. For the current ruling party uh, following the election of the new prime minister and that infamous mini budget uh, so we'll be examining the future of the conservatives um, after the conference and uh, the budget that has caused so much unrest um, and possibly asking the question are, are we are we ready for a new prime minister mm. uh, who's going to be joining us to discuss this then uh, so we'll be joined um, by uh, long-standing conservative supporter Philip Gent and uh, the Lib Dem member Nasir Bhatt okay oh right uh, and um, what about Faith and Focus? Yeah, so we'll be followed with Faith and Focus, and uh, we'll co- have a continued look into the life of the Holy Prophet um, and the address he made on his one and only pilgrimage. Okay. 
And uh, after the 11 o'clock news? So after the 11 o'clock news, I think um, probably uh, it is worth, uh, it's probably all linked to sort of uh, just the discussion we just had. We, is it going to be an understanding of the economic ramifications of the new government approach? Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to try and understand that a little bit more better, uh, especially on the impact of interest rates and house prices. I think something that we're all probably very concerned about at the moment. Mm-hmm. And we'll be talking to uh, Mansoor Ahmed Manan, um, who works in Islamic banking, and we'll be exploring his take on this particular issue from uh, the Islamic perspective. And uh, Islam, of course, prohibits the use of interest. So uh, we'll try and ask, how does an Islamic bank function in in this modern environment? Okay. And uh, what else? Uh, And then, of course, um, for those that have been avidly, we've been watching on uh, MTA. There's been a historic opening of the Fatih Azim Mosque a couple of weeks ago in Zion, Illinois. So we'll be discussing its significance and... uh, its background with Imam Rabib Mirza later on mm. in the pro- uh, program. Okay. And uh, with regard to the sports, anything exciting happening? Are you are you a Premiership fan? Or? I, I am. I, I support Southampton and we got um, thoroughly... South, Southampton? Yeah, yeah, Not yeah. Man United? No, 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 no. <laughs> no I wouldn't, wouldn't do that to myself. Um, uh, <laughs> I've got enough problems in my life. Right. <laughs> um, uh, no, Southampton. I, I went to university there, so... Oh, um, I see. Uh, it was uh, where I've chosen to lay my allegiance, but yeah, we we got a good drubbing by by what can only be said as the favourite. So I'll be looking into that mm. um, and uh, looking at all of the games after the international break and discussing any key developments that have been mm. taking place this week with Shai Khan, and also looking for forward to the forthcoming T Twenty World Cup. Okay, um, uh, Zishan is our technical help today, and uh, I'm sure he'll be. Uh, uh, putting through Philip Gent and Nasser Baton now. Um, uh, I hope that's the case. Um, uh, but while we're waiting, uh, let me just uh, go through some of the uh, prelim regarding the news review. So the first thing we have to do is to have that jingle. We can't, <laughs> can't, not can't, move, can't jingle. move without it. <laughs> uh, no, there we go. Weekend World. Look at this week's news, views and reviews. Right. Um, the uh, uh, Times, Matthew Paris in the Times wrote, the Parliamentary Conservative Party must urgently cut itself free of what will soon be the political corpse of its leadership. Uh, the Prime Minister must be dispatched now. So that's what he said. Uh, that was uh, what he wrote. He's quite an influential uh, writer, um, mm. a Tory supporter. Uh, do you think it's uh, curtains for Listros already? I mean, I, th- I, I don't know. I mean, if you get most of the polls now giving the Labour Party at least, at least mm. a 20 point lead, I mean, under normal circumstances, that would be a, a huge majority anyway. But we're seeing these fluctuate between 20 to 35 mm. percent. Um, you've seen a, I, I would say, potentially one of, the, well, not potentially, I mean, we've probably seen one of the worst. Um, uh, worst party conferences in the terms of, you know, the infighting, the lack of support and the sort of general low morale um, of the Conservative uh, Party members. You've seen, you know, like very some very large stalwarts that actually decide to stay away from it. I mean, even Boris Johnson, who was a key ally, also decided not to turn up. David Davis didn't come. David Davis didn't come. Rishi Sunak wasn't around. Mm. Um, 
And then also some very sort of uh, direct criticisms of the current prime minister, mm. you know, in the in the face of some very senior members mm. like Michael Gove. Um, yeah. So there, there's um, one would have to say, I mean, this is this is not good. This is not good territory by any uh, by any means. No. So. Uh, Philip, um, uh, Philip's with us. Philip Gentry, he's a con- long, long-standing conservative, uh, well, conservative supporter, conservative party member. Thank you, Ramesh, for coming on, uh, uh, Philip. Peace be on you. Yeah. Uh, my pleasure. Right. Um, so is it curtains for uh, Liz Truss already? That's the question we are uh, we're pondering over. Yeah, I, I think I think certainly uh, certainly what we can say is that it's probably too early to um, come to a judgment in relation to the current uh, Conservative administration. Uh, she has uh, accepted that she has made missteps and uh, at the moment she's still recovering to regain her feet, I'd say. Uh, but whether whether it's uh, the beginning of the end, I, I think it's a little bit too early to, to, to mm. call. Uh, and, and some senior uh, members of the Conservative Party have uh, now issued a letter to all members of parliament, uh, in particular those on the back benches, to unite behind the current administration, to unite behind the leader, um, because uh, an alternative would, would, would hmm. almost hmm. certainly to um, an election defeat. Yeah, Philip. One of one of the uh, issues that dented confidence in her was the mini budget. Um, what do you think was wrong fundamentally with it that caused so much uh, turbulence as described by the Chancellor? Yeah. Um, I, and, and I did write in Conservative Home in relation to what I uh, wanted uh, economically going forward. And directionally, I think um, the agenda is, is a good one. I think cutting taxes to promote productivity, to promote economic growth and to grow the pie is a, is a sensible one, and, and given this economic scenario that faces that. However, uh, what unfortunately did not happen is that um, the Chancellor and Liz perhaps did not take the Bank of England, mm-hmm. did not take the Cabinet into confidence as to what they were planning to do, and so there was just too much surprise for too many uh, elements in, in, in the jigsaw, and including the market, including the Bank of England, uh, and, and and that probably was um, uh, how can we say it? I mean that was an error of judgment. That was an error of judgment. Right. Um, I, I know that one of the um, issues that um, were quite was that was quite criticised was the forty five percent rate, and uh, there was a, a U turn on that. I just want to share with you a clip of what uh, Listra said following that uh, particular U turn. Uh, Frank. Oh. Frankly, the 45p wasn't a priority policy. Frankly, the 45p wasn't a priority policy. And I listen to people, and I think there's there's absolutely no shame, Beth, mm. in a leader listening to people and responding. Mm. And that's the kind of person I am. And I've been totally honest and upfront with people, but. It, everything I've done as Prime Minister is focused on helping people get through what is a very difficult winter and very difficult circumstances. 
Nasabata is with us. Nasabata is uh, is a long-standing uh, Lib Dem supporter, Lib Dem member. Do you think that this kind of U-turn is a sign of weakness? Well, not really. It was only to be expected because um, we now have a government that's probably the most right-wing in the more modern UK history. And they've thrown everything that the extreme right-wing of Tory party uh, aspires to in one shot. Mm. And of course, it has implications both on the existing MPs, Tory MPs who are in a marginal seat or who have taken seats from Labour Party in the last election. And, uh, and of course, they are fearful of their own seats. So that, that's just, this is just the first shot of protecting themselves. Of course, there's a whole uh, array of things they've introduced, which is right-wing about this um, uh, mini-budget. And uh, there's more to come because the next stage is parliament and the backbenchers and the senior politicians who will challenge some of the things along with the opposition party. And, uh, and then, of course, he's going to go to the House of Lords and there'll be challenges there. So I think it's just the start of the road, and uh, and one has to understand the background how we got here in order to really appreciate why there's such bold right-wing policies being introduced as an opportunity. Mm. So so now it's just the start. It's just the start. Philip, are you too right-wing then, uh, <laughs> as far as your right, uh, as your as far as your leadership is concerned? I, I, I don't think so. I, I think it's the role of the media to simplify and uh, to some of the media to, to simplify and exaggerate. And I think in, in relation to the 5% uh, uh, tax share, um, that 45% is the highest in the G7. Yeah. Mm. So to, to bring it back down to 40, to incentivize global talent to come here, to set up business, to to, to improve, um, you know, our economy, it was not a bad idea. I do think, however, that it could have waited. There was no need to put that in um, straight away without consultation. Um, what has what has happened is the, the 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 help that the government has given in relation to the energy um, uh, crisis, cost, you know, cost, uh, rise in energy prices and, and help they've given there has just been lost. Uh, and nobody's really focusing on that. So there was a lot of good that the Chancellor announced, but uh, unfortunately that no, nobody is seeing that. Sorry, Philip, on a, on a final point on that as well then, I mean, y- you can see the polling numbers, and as a Conservative member, you would probably be quite worried um, presently with, uh, w- w- with the current state of polling. Considering that there is such a wide gap, considering that there is such a wide gap, what do you think? What 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 does this current prime minister have to do to turn it around? What do you think that will need to happen for her to be um, electorally viable by the time of the next general election? Two things. Two things. I think first of all, you know, polls are polls, and yes, they need to be considered. But then, you know, MPs <coughs> need 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 to need to work this through with with Liz and have have a little bit of trust in in in, in the democratic process that, that we've just gone through and so there's an element of holding holding nerve two years is a long time in uh, in politics as you know uh, what I think if in two years time the economy has turned around interest rates are back down 
people have more money in their pocket, hopefully due to these tax cuts and a growing economy. And we we sort out a key issue, and that's the migration issue, the channel crossings in a, in a respectable way. I think that will help uh, turn around the fortunes in many ways. And Nasser, I mean, I guess from the Lib Dems' point of view, are you a little bit worried that you're beginning to sort of lose, uh, basically the electorate is shifting more towards Labour now um, and sort of carrying all of the Conservatives, uh, uh, sorry, all of those Conservative votes are going back to Labour, especially in the Red War. Lib Dems are sort of um, a little bit in no man's land at the moment, no? Well, some of Lib Dem votes are also going there. That's that's the worry. I don't know where you're getting your information from, but anyway... Um, I don't think the Lib Dems are worried at all. Um, if you, um, I'll come back to Lib Dems in a second, but I just wanted to pick on one or two points that uh, uh, Philip has made, which I think I need challenging. First of all, um, the point he's made is we just gone through a democratic process. Uh, you know, this is what I said earlier on. We need to look at the context before we understand what's happened here. We had Boris Johnson win 80 majority two, three years back. And on the back of that, you've seen what we, you, you, we've seen, and we've now got uh, a leadership uh, selection by 160,000 people within a Labour Party with a right-wing you know, uh, agenda from the membership. Now, the, the MPs are more balanced because they are more with it, and they know they need to be in the middle of the road and not come up with such a right-wing agenda. But in order to win the hearts and minds and votes, rather, the, the, the policies have come out of that membership and the promises she's made. The other aspect of that democratic process is there's an article in uh, Guardian highlighting once the reports came in after the selection of the place that over or, or about uh, 500,000 pounds was raised for her campaign, leadership campaign. She's only allowed to spend 300,000 and more than half of them came from very rich, very wealthy businesses, investment managers, and, you know, property industry, et cetera, et cetera. And those are the people who are behind the push and who have always wanted this. Now, if you look at, if you look at, it's just not the 45,000. The corporation tax trapping was to pay for the already um, loaned and borrowing that's happened in the last two, three years, billions. Then that's been scrapped. And now we have to pay that by more funding. The universal credit is in jeopardy because they want to actually change that to cut that as well by linking it to wages which are being controlled rather than inflation. There are the national insurance was to pay for NHS and social funds. That's been scrapped and there's no saying where that money has come from. And that, that particular tax is a progressive tax. And it was mostly paid by people who were well-to-do and earn a good earner, not the poorest. The poorest pays the minimum amount. So again, the money is gone to the rich. And then you've got mortgages, you've got NHS, you've got you know, the Bank of England coming and, and spending billions to recover the pension fund jeopardy. It's the whole package. It's not just the 45%. Thank you very much. I think you make some very good points. And I'm going to allow Philip just to um, respond to some of those uh, points. I mean, definitely on the point of, for example, the mandate that Liz Truss has been given. um, This is not what people voted for, essentially, I think, what it came down to. And uh, much of the uh, much of the economic package is not really uh, geared towards what was essentially 
pointed out um, in the 2019 election. How would you respond to that? Right. Uh, It's the parliamentary process that we we live in. So, so, you know, the Labour Party had a change of leader as well midterm, and uh, they adopted their own internal process. We've adopted our internal process, and that's just the way it is. Uh, we, we have to um, address the current issues. So, okay, nobody foresaw the cost of the crisis when the manifesto was written. Nobody foresaw Putin coming into Ukraine. And, and it would be remiss of government not to uh, react or to respond, I, I should say, to, to those events. What I would say is, um, you know, 1P cut in income tax uh, helps um, the lower paid workers. What I would say is the cut in national health uh, insurance, in, in national insurance, help everybody, employers and employees at all levels. What I would say is that the support uh, capping the energy costs helps all people, you know, including the most vulnerable. Um, so I'm not sh- quite sure where Nassar respectfully is coming from. In relation to the uh, universal credit, obviously that was a conservative policy uh, and introduced by the Conservative government. It helps help people transition into work. Those who are unemployed have some easy transition into work. It could be improved upon, but it, that is a Conservative policy. Uh, in relation to limiting the uh, rise in, in, in benefits to the average um, inflation, that's not that's not been announced. That's mere conjecture. And I don't, don't think we should be having a conversation on what is conjectural. I think once it's announced, once it's in place, then we can have a conversation about it. But at the moment, it is conjecture. Right. Um, th- thanks for that. Moving on to uh, another story, uh, a big story on the world stage. Uh, and uh, that's the continued hostilities in the Ukraine. Uh, bridges are being blown up and Russia has annexed uh, large parts of Ukraine in a ceremony last week, which a uh, few recognized. And the United States has allegedly sabotaged its Nord uh, 2 gas uh, pipeline. Um, and this is what um, one of the uh, leading commentators, Professor Je- Jeffrey Sachs, uh, had to say on Nord Stream 2 as to who was responsible. Well, first of all, there's direct radar evidence that U.S. Uh, helicopters, military helicopters that are normally based in Gdansk, uh, were uh, circling over this area. We also had the threats from the United States earlier in this year that one way or another, we are going to end Nord Stream. We also have a remarkable statement by Secretary Blinken last Friday in a press conference. That he says, this is also a tremendous opportunity. It's oh. a strange way to, it's, uh, sorry, it's a strange way to talk if you're worried about the piracy on international infrastructure Professor. of vital significance. So I know this runs counter to our narrative. It runs, you're not allowed to say these things uh, in, in, uh, in the West. But the fact of the matter is, all over the world, when I talk to people, they think the okay. U.S. did it. Right, so that was a clip from one of the uh, exchanges that was taking place on uh, one of the uh, uh, American networks. Uh, professor Gen- uh, Jeffrey Sachs uh, is a professor at uh, the University of Columbia in the United States. Um, president Putin has already threatened uh, the use of nuclear weapons, and former CIA director and retired uh, Army General Petraeus has said about the likely U.S. response, and I quote, we would respond by leading a NATO, a collective effort that would take 
out every Russian conventional force that we can see and identify on the battlefield in Ukraine and also in Crimea and every ship in the Black Sea. Um, uh, Nasser, is this, is, is this the opening salvo of World War III, do you think? I, I mean, I think uh, as a political activist and political, political analyst, if you like, for 30 years, I don't see the ground um, reality because of the democratic processes, especially in the West, that, that the U.S. Or, or NATO would be poor to war. Uh, uh, to war because they, they, their own political processes won't allow a risk of war on their land. So I don't, I think these are tit for tat, um, and I don't think we are in that serious stage, but these are, this is only to be expected, expected because Putin is cornered, and he seems to think that, you know, that's the one way to control NATO movement. But I don't think there's a real threat, um, because if, uh, I don't think America or Britain or Europe have the appetite to go into a war on their own land. And what, we, what, what the threats are about is taking on each other, targets on each other's land. I think that, that's, that's not likely to happen, in my opinion. Philip, it's a hollow threat. Is that, is that something that you would also concur with? The, the, the threat from... Uh, uh, well, either side. I mean, there's no real big threat. I mean, this is what Nasser, right. I understand, is saying, is that there's no near, uh, real threat of a, of a nuclear conflagration. Right. Well, well, I I would um, go back to what our beloved, uh, I believe that's mm. said. There is a, a, a latent threat that has not gone away uh, in relation to to nuclear. Uh, also, our holy scripture refers to Hokuma and the uh, risk of you know calamity. Uh, uh, in relation to the use of nuclear weapons, so I certainly would not rule it out, given given those um, uh, warnings um, and uh, that we have received. Mm-hmm. Now, what I would say is uh, Putin is highly unpredictable. Um, he, obviously, you know, the communications are you know open communic. There are open communications between the U.S. and and Russia, and I'm sure that uh, Russia have been informed that um, the consequences of uh, small-scale nuclear weapons being used in this conflict will result in a massive um, response. Uh, uh, but what I would say is, you know, nothing nothing uh, is off the table, and there's high risk, I would say, of, um, of, of a nuclear, uh, small-scale nu- nuclear use. Uh, mm. No doubt about it. We should not be ruling it out at all. After all, you know, we, we, we did think that Putin uh, uh, was manageable, and we did, uh, you know, open up businesses, did go into Russia, invest in Russia. Uh, but uh, what happened in Ukraine took everybody by surprise, in a, in a sense. I don't think we should uh, we shouldn't, uh, ignore the threat at all. And we should be planning uh, to, 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 to uh, ensure that uh, the risk is minimized. I mean, um, going back to that point, I mean, uh, he, he makes a, uh, Philip makes a good point. I mean, uh, we we probably didn't think that uh, Vladimir Putin would go into Ukraine. I think as early as January, we were still discussing whether that was even a possibility, let, uh, let alone, um, uh, you know, a, 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 a potential fact. Um, what would your what, what's your view uh, on it? How, how do we de-escalate at the moment? What, what would be your um 
push in what we should be doing to try and de-escalate the current situation? And do you think the West is doing enough to do that, or are they probably trying to light a bit of torch paper at the same time? Well, I think, I think first of all, we are putting too much emphasis in the wrong direction on what's happening in Ukraine. If, if you put it in context, and if you look at the last 30 years from the early 90s with the first Iraq war, the West has been going in and actually invading and destroying countries around the world, and we've all seen that. And Russia has started to do that with Syria. They tried Iraq. So this has been going on. They would go and, and, and fight on another country, on another land. And the fight is being restricted to that. So in that respect, Ukraine is no different from what happened in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or Syria. So, of course, it's near the borders, and therefore it takes on a bit high-profile you know, high activity and more alert from both NATO and, uh, and Russia. And I think the war, whatever weapons are being used, they will be conventional, and I think they will restrict themselves to the land of Ukraine. They will not risk going into Russia or other European, NATO rather, countries. And I think, I think, I think that is uh, where it's going to be constrained. So it could mean that Ukraine could be destroyed, like perhaps Syria and uh, Iraq, in the process. But I think the war is going to stay in there. And uh, Philip, I mean. Uh I guess also coming back from sort of a conservative, uh, you know, oh. taking into account your sort of conservative hat, um, how have you felt with the, um, I guess, with the rhetoric, uh, not, I wouldn't even say the rhetoric, but the, the messaging uh, that's come out of the leadership? Uh, do you think it's correct? Do you think it's the, uh, do you think the tone's been right um, in how uh, the West, especially led by Boris Johnson and Liz Truss in this manner has been um, has been uh, on the right sort of way of uh, approaching this uh, in relation to Russia. In, in relation to Russia, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think I think you know there's a domestic audience, uh, there's an international audience, and then and then there's you know the the conversations that happen through the backdoor channels with um, Russia and, and, and Putin. So I think we've always got to be cognizant of that, um, but for sure, Russia are in no are, have been left in no no doubt that you know any escalation would be met with a severe uh, and unprecedented response. Um, that, 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 that's very clear. That's very clear. So you know we, we have you know nobody nobody should be uh, left uh, in any doubt that uh, a large power. Cannot, cannot with impunity attack a weaker neighbour. That is, that is wrong. That is wrong in Islam, uh, and Islam advocates international peace. And countries surrounding those countries should work uh, for the peace of, of those two nations. So we have to, we have to be on the side of Ukraine. We cannot allow a power, no matter how powerful, to to come and uh, 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 overrun a weaker, a weaker state. I think that's wrong. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure having you both on, actually, this morning um, and sharing your views. Um, with uh, as per normal, it's uh, it, it's as a, as a listener, as an avid listener, it's always good to get the uh, the views of uh, uh, of our listeners. 
um, and people with um, uh, their own takes. So, Jazakallah, thank you very much for, for, for both of your time. Thank you very much. Oh, yes. to you both. Thank you very much for coming on. Right. Right. Um, we have to move on. Uh, and we are uh, almost going uh, forward on time, aren't we? So, <laughs> so it's better than I better. dare say. <laughs> no, well, I'm not daring to say anything. We <laughs> <laughs> be very careful with our words, yes, because uh, people may be listening yes, and reporting. Um Right, it's it is uh, facing uh, focus, and uh, this is uh, uh, the regular slot uh, where we are uh, focusing our attention on uh, on religious matters, and in particular, for the last several uh, editions, we've been looking at the life of the Holy Prophet peace be upon him. Uh, and uh, where have we reached uh, now? Yeah, so in the last edition of this program, uh, we, you were reviewing the events of the yes. Hajj. Um, and the, uh, f- amazingly, to my knowledge, mm. the only Hajj yes. um, uh, that the Holy Prophet uh, performed in his life. Um, and of course, we'll be examining what he said during the address and yeah. the sermons he delivered during the event. So yep. I, guess really, I guess from the very start then, he made a number of addresses, one of which was in the form of the farewell sermon. Hmm. Where did this take place, and what exactly did he say? Yes, um, so what we find in, uh, when we look in the records and the history books, the biographies, um, we find in the original biographies uh, various addresses that were made, and in later books they are all consolidated in, into one but we have to remember that there was more than one one address that has been consolidated into what is normally referred to as the favor sermon. The sermon itself uh, took place uh, at a place called Arafat. It's within the confines of uh, uh, Makkah. Was uh, was being delivered. Uh, um, it was uh, delivered as you mentioned. Uh, at the only Hajj that the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, performed. Mm. Um, and uh, he had announced uh, before the Hajj that he would perform the Hajj and all its rites uh, in such a way that it would serve as an example for future pilgrims to adopt when they are performing Hajj. So it's a very important uh, event in its own right, yeah. aside from what he's saying. Um, now, in view of the status he had gained uh, by that time, uh, when he first announced to perform the Hajj, a lot of people from different parts of Arabia uh, participated with him, and estimates of 100,000 have been quoted in the history books, probably the largest ever amassed at that time. Uh, and you know, you contrast this with the circumstances of the Holy Prophet just 10 years before mm. when he was fleeing with such, with just one of his companions on his side and a bounty of 100 camels on his head. Uh, the transformation was remarkable and could not have been achieved without a special uh, favor of God Almighty. And uh, it underlines the truth of Islam, this big dramatic change that took place. Now, coming to the question that you've asked, um, um, in this sermon, he set out his vision of what he wanted the future to be. Mm-hmm. And it was based on the kind of values that he had been urging people to embrace for a long, long time. For instance, he declared, and this is a quote, 
He said that your blood and your money are haram for you, meaning you cannot kill each other or steal each other's pro- uh, property. Right. Uh, just like the day. And he says that just like this day has its sanctity and this month has its san- sanctity and this land has its sanctity in the same way, your blood and your money are, are haram for you. And here he abolished the law of the jungle, so which was rampant in pre-Islamic Arabia. Uh, and we have to recall the condition of the Arabs uh, before Islam, where they would usurp the rights of others, uh, the weak and the infirm. Uh, this is uh, one of the reasons why he took great satisfaction when he was young, the Holy Prophet was young, in becoming a member of Il Fuzul, the organization set up by one of his uncles. And this organization had pledged to come to the aid of anyone whose rights had been uh, over overrun or uh, uh, reserved. And mm-hmm. that in, in initiative had limited effect. Now that the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, was in the position he was, he was urging for it to be a thing of the past permanently. So no longer was the stealing, raping, or coming, uh, or conning others with impunity was to be allowed. The era of might is right had gone, mm-hmm. and emphasized with the words, and this is what he said, verily everything from the time of Jahliya, it is under my foot. Right. Uh, this also meant that uh, the worshipping of idols, old meaningless rituals, superstitions, uh, they were all relegated to the past. I mean, it's quite. I mean, knowing what we do about the history of Arabia at the time, um, you you would see a lot of intertribal warfare, and mm-hmm. this was a common. Uh, this was a common, I, I guess, um, common act uh, that the Arabs uh, took part in. What did the Holy Prophet sallallahu say about that? And uh, uh, I'm assuming that 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 had to come to a stop. Certainly, uh, he specifically turned uh, his attention to the issue of conflict uh, during this particular sermon. And remember, the Arabs before the Holy Prophet would start a fight at the drop of a hat uh, <laughs> right. for the po- uh, you know for the most trivial of reasons. I don't know whether you remember. reminds me of my children. Sorry. No, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. no, no. I'm sure your, your children are well no, no, brought good, up. Yes. <laughs> okay. <But> anyway. <laughs> Uh, uh, so, uh, but uh, uh, for Arabs, uh, fighting was something, uh, you know, that was a regular pastime yeah. uh, and was uh, something that they would engage in at the, at the most trivial of reasons. Mm. Um, the term uh, always, uh, you know, cruising for a bruising would be, <laughs> would be, <laughs> would be very much fit, uh, the ways that they tended to behave. Anyway, one person, for instance, was attacked and killed because he looked so good. On the, uh, on the ride he was riding. And this started a tit-for-tat cycle of revenge and counter-revengeance between not only uh, the two parties, but the, the relations of the two parties, the, mm. the entire tribes uh, were at each other's throats because of that one event. Yeah. So this kind of pettiness uh, was, was certainly not uncommon. In fact, it was so rife that every single tribe had a long list of enemies and then a long list of allies, all chomping at the bit to get at the throats of their adversaries. Uh, there was no unity. Mm. So the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, during uh, this first of his uh, uh, addresses, put a full stop to all this. He said, all of these feuds are under my foot, obliterated. It's see. an expression. Yeah. And to demonstrate, and this is very significant, to demonstrate that he meant business, he started with himself first. He said, the first blood money that I obliterate is the blood money from my own family, the son of Rabia ibn al-Haris mm. ibn, uh, ibn Abdul Muttalib. 
Now, this needs some explanation. So basically what he's doing there is saying that as far as the grievance that my family has uh, over another tribe, I reject it, I condemn that, I uh, I um, forget it. Right, right. That bygones be bygones. Now, what is the grievance that he had? Well, the grievance that he had was against the tribe of Hosel. Now, Hosel, uh, uh, what happened there was that Rabia bin Haris is a relative of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Rabia bin Haris was the first cousin of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. So his father, the Holy Prophet's father, yeah. and Rabia's father, are you with me, yes? Yes, yes, yes. Our brothers. Got you, got our you. brothers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So, his, so Rabia has a, has a grievance, and because Rabia has a grievance, and he's a cousin of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, the Holy Prophet has a grievance. And I because see. the Holy Prophet has a grievance, the whole uh, tribe, tribe of the Holy Prophet has a grievance, yeah. all right? And the grievance is that uh, Rabia had a son, his name was uh, Adam, mm. and as was the custom in those times, when he was born or soon afterwards, he was sent over to one of the tribes in the country for the first couple of years of his life. And in the case of Adam, Rabia's son, uh, he was sent to the tribe of Banu Saad. Now, the Banu Saad had a conflict with a tribe called Huzel. Right. right. And uh, so when Huzel attacked the Banu Saad, uh, Rabia's son, Adam, mm. uh, got caught in the crossfire. Got you. And was killed. I see. All right. So he was killed by the Huzel. Because the Huzel killed, it, uh, killed him, then uh, Rabia had a grievance against the Hazel, and therefore the tribe of the Holy Prophet has a, uh, had a uh, grievance against So the whole the, tribe has to have yes, a grievance. Yes, so they have to have uh, their uh, their revenge. Right. And the family of Rabia uh, demanded some sort of restitution uh, and blood money. Uh, it was, I think, 100 camels. Mm-hmm. It had not been paid, and they were they were bracing for some, uh, themselves for some kind of a confrontation in the future to settle scores. So, well... With this statement, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, it was put to an end. Okay. So it's like a kind of gang culture almost. Yeah. It's th- no, The whole yeah, of Arabia is yeah. like yes. sort of one big sort of area of gang. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Reminds me of, uh, of the uh, way that the mafia is characterized. That, exactly. Yeah, That's exactly yeah. the way I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking of yeah. it. So uh, so the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, said there's no blood money, okay, the, and there's going to be no fighting. It's over. Right. As far as the Holy Prophet is concerned, and he said this, that it's trampled under my foot, confined to the dust no more. So with this, and this is why I feel it's very important, Mm. the Holy Prophet was setting an example. He was saying something. He was instructing uh, for something to to be done. But he was uh, not only saying it, he was also doing it himself, applying it to himself. He was putting his money where his mouth is. He applied his teaching to himself and his clan first and then ask others to follow. Not the other way around. Now, how refreshing would that yep, be yep. if our leaders today also behaved in that way? Sadly, that's not, uh, no, that's not too not, common, isn't it? Not, that, one of the reasons why we had party <laughs> gates. <laughs> yes. yeah. um, um, and if they had followed the Holy Prophet's example, then uh, he would still be there. And I guess, I mean, because mm. you've seen a unity within Arabia afterwards, I guess it was, would have been taken up by mm. a lot of the tribes. Yes, yes, certainly. So uh, what else did the Holy Prophet say during this during the speech? Well, the next thing he he also mentioned was that regarding uh, interest, something we're going to be talking yes. about more detail later on. He declared, "Verily, the, uh, riba yeah. uh, from the days of Jahaliya is under my foot, uh, abolished." I see. And the first riba, and this is again very significant. The first riba that I abolish is that of my uncle, 
uh, Abbas bin uh, Muttalib. So he's starting with him, himself in his own family first. Now, he gives an instruction and applies it to his nearest and dearest first. He had not given any loan and interest himself, but he knew his uncle, and everyone probably knew, that his uncle uh, Abbas uh, had done so. He was a man of means and had given loans and interest as was the custom in those times. Yeah. So all his debtors were told with this announcement that they only needed to return the capital sum uh, and not the interest. All interest had been abolished and in, instruction to others was immediately followed by its application on, on his nearest and dearest. So this is an example of the Holy Prophet. And then he turned his attention, the Holy Prophet did, to the weaker sections of society, and in particular the women uh-huh. who were amongst the most downtrodden in yeah. the community, and looked down upon, treated not as human beings, but as chattels or possessions. And here the Holy Prophet, uh, peace be upon him, admonished uh, the men. He said that fear Allah with regards to women and their rights, for you have taken them with the protection of Allah and made them permissible with the name of Allah. So here the Holy Prophet is warning that a wedding undertaken is one that is should be deemed to be undertaken under the gaze of the Almighty with his approval, so to speak, and one needs to be watchful of respecting their rights. In another place, the Holy Prophet has also reminded companions to treat their wives well, and he, was, uh, he said that the best in treating his wives, in other words, to explain that his example, if it's followed, uh, would uh, ensure that uh, appropriate treatment or good treatment is afforded uh, to their uh, to their wives, as he was uh, an example of that particular way of uh, of treatment. So very progressive for that yes. for that particular moment very in time. Very much so. Yeah, very yeah, much yeah. so. Um, so he also received a revelation here. Yes. So what was that? And uh, would we have? Is it? An, is it documented? Yes. So this is in, in the Holy Quran. It's verse, chapter 5, verse 4. And uh, uh, it says that this day I have perfected your religion for you and completed my favor upon you and I've chosen for you Islam as, as religion. Right. It's significant for, for many reasons, uh, or should I say for more than one reason. Mm. Uh, some years later, um, um, a man of uh, Jewish persuasion came to Hazrat Umar when he had become Khalifa and said, there is a verse in your Quran, which if we had its equivalent, we would have taken that day as a day of celebration. Right. And uh, Hazrat Umar inquired, what verse? And the uh, Jew require, uh, replied that this verse, uh, which says that the day I have uh, perfected your mm-hmm. religion for you. And Hazrat Umar said, I know exactly when this, was, this verse was revealed. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was standing on the plains of Arafah on the day of Al-Hajjul Akbar, and Allah revealed this verse. So it's already a day of celebration for us. Um, so uh, this is something that we need to remember for uh, the next edition, mm. because it is uh, it is relevant. And what is relevant is that this verse was revealed in, uh, in Makkah at the time of the sermon of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, the first, probably the first address that he was giving and not at a later stage. It is something that's going to be relevant later on. Anyway, uh, the Holy Prophet uh, also said uh, near the beginning of this sermon, he said that, listen to me, for I know not whether I shall meet you again after this year. So clearly he had a premonition that uh, uh, he would not be on this earth for much longer. And finally in this sermon he said that you shall soon be asked about me. So what shall you say? 
And the people replied, We will testify in front of Allah that you have conveyed the message, done your duty, and that you were sincere. Mm -hmm. So he's very much um, concerned about uh, whether he had fulfilled his mission as far as the people he was supposed to deliver his message to. Very much concerned about that. Um, And when the people said this, the Holy Prophet raised his hands and said three times, uh, Oh, Allah, bear witness uh, on what they have said. They have heard me and understood me. And um, commentators, uh, when you look through uh, the history books and look through various people who have uh, commented on the life of the Holy Prophet, they say that this was important also because there is a verse in the Holy Quran which says that uh, on the Day of Judgment we will surely question those who have received messengers Mm. and we will question the messengers themselves. I see. All right. So I I think that uh, what is being uh, alluded to there is that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was very wary of the fact that he uh, that he, uh, his people will be questioned as to whether he had fulfilled yep. his task of delivering that message, and therefore he wanted some kind of assurance here as well. I always it always strikes me a little bit this I, when I read about this and I've read something similar. It was never about his legacy, but the legacy of the message mm. that it was most important to him. Mm. And I always find that you know, like it's it's a part that yeah. it's it's never really about him. Uh, moving on, very, um, uh, just for, in the interest of time. You said there was more than one sermon. Uh, yeah. There was one more than one sermon or address that he gave during Hajj. Um, so, what were, what were the general messages of of the others, and what was he saying in uh, in the other messages? Right. Um, well, uh, there was another. So, this is probably given on the tenth of Zul Hajj. Mm-hmm. On the eleventh of Zul Hajj, he uh, reiterated uh, what he said earlier, and he said that, uh, 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 "Woe to you! Do not return." to being uh, kuffar, killing one another. So he's basically talking about the inter-tribal warfare and the law of the jungle that he was uh, mentioning earlier. Uh, in other words, uh, do not immerse yourself into conflict with one mm. another. And it is here also, um, you know, we, we come to hear a lot of um, uh, sayings of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. We never really uh, find out about when they were actually uh, said. But here, uh, one of the... Uh, sayings that is often quoted is a Muslim is one from whose hands and tongue others are safe. Right. So it was on this occasion that he actually mentioned that, that a Muslim is one from whose hands and tongue others are safe. And he's trying to uh, emphasize the fact that uh, do not engage in intertribal warfare, do not uh, in- engage in settling petty scores. Um, and there's an urgency also you find uh, in this particular rest. Uh, to ensure that his message is not lost and his message is not confined to those uh, who are there alone. He says, uh, let the one who is present uh, go and inform the one who is absent. Uh, Meaning, go and tell other people about this. For those who are absent might understand uh, better than the, uh, the the present audience. And this is documented in one of the books of these. And he also said that a mu'min is one who uh, the people trust Mm. Uh, with their money and property. So again, he's, he's urging for uh, Muslims to adopt good, uh, respectable conduct. And the Holy uh, Prophet, peace be upon him, reminded the gathering of the fundamentals as well. And this is quite important. He said, uh, and this is uh, again uh, documented in uh, one of the books of this. He says, Fear Allah, pray your five prayers, fast your month of Ramadan, give your zakat, 
and obey your rulers and you shall enter the Jannah of your Lord. So obedience to rulers is something mm. uh, that is also being emphasized here. And then we have that famous quote, uh, uh, and this is um, found in, again, one of the leading books of Hadith, uh, in the Musnad of uh, Ahmad bin Ambal. He says, O people, uh, your Lord is one, and your f- uh, father Adam is one. There is no superiority of an Arab or a non-Arab, mm. nor a non-Arab or an Arab, and neither white skin or black skin, nor black skin or white skin. You're all equal, and you only differ between yourselves uh, depending on the condition of your taqwa, if you fear of God. It's a very, very historic... It and very it's amazing that this is also incredibly progressive for its time, right? This yes. is not this this was would not have been a normal thing to say there would have been a lot of uh, xenophobia I guess between uh, between people absolutely I mean it's such an important point you're making that this is 1400 years yes, ago yeah uh, we haven't gone through through the dark stages yet as far as yes. Europe is concerned yeah uh, this is a very very and it's it's it wasn't even recognized i mean we had a uh, we, we had apartheid until the 1990s Correct. Uh, Correct, uh, yeah. in in certain parts of the world yeah america was rife with civil uh, right, uh, civil yep. rights conflict because of uh, because of this prejudice mm. but here the holy prophet peace be upon him was making it very clear that everybody is equal it's amazing uh, isn't in, it? irrespective of the, the color of their skin yeah um and then did anything of note happen on the way back from Hajj? Yes. Now, this is uh, the the Hajj finished, um, and the Holy Prophet uh, returned. Now it's the thirteenth of Zulhajj. Yeah. I'm just giving these as a matter of detail. I suppose it, it's not uh, too germane and yeah. understanding what was happening. But on the way back, there is the incident of Hadir Khum. Now, Hadir Khum is a place, and it is a place on the outskirts of Mecca, and it's significant because uh, of something that happened there that gained uh, controversy among the Shia and the Sunni. Now, the event took place on the 14th of Zulhaj, the day of the Holy Prophet left Mecca. Uh, the background is that Hazrat Ali was in Yemen when the Hajj um, you know, decisions when the decision to go to Hajj took uh, took place, and uh, he was traveling back, and with him were some hundred camels, which the Holy Prophet asked for, and a lot of zakat and sadqa raised from the Yemenis. Now, in his eagerness to meet up the, with the Holy Prophet, when he reached the outskirts of Makkah, he left someone in, else in charge of the goods. This is as Ali. Right. And and that individual started to distribute those goods, including the clothes, etc., to the entourage. So when uh, uh, the Holy Prophet met up with this entourage, or when Hazrat Ali met up back with this entourage, he was extremely unhappy that the goods meant for the treasury and zakat and sadqa had been distributed. So he ordered for their uh, return. And this was not well received. So Hazrat Ali was basically... Uh, being mal- bad mouth, um, right? Okay, right. so you know if you've just been given expensive things one minute, and a little while <laughs> later somebody comes comes around and says that you know you have to give it back, you don't feel very yeah. good, and they started grumbling, moaning, having a go at Hazrat Ali. Yeah. Uh, so and the best way to vent uh, your anger properly was to lodge a complaint with the Holy Prophet, and that's what they did. 
And this was done after the Hajj, and in response, the Holy Prophet gave an address uh, known as the uh, Sermon of Ghazir Khum, and which, in which he praised Hazrat Ali profusely, and he said that whoever is the Mawla of Ali, I am the Mawla of Ali. And this is somehow construed by the Shias to mean that he had basically given uh, the green light for the successorship after him to be passed to Hazrat Ali. And the verse is also relevant, but why it is relevant, you'll have to wait till the next edition <laughs> and we will reveal all. So here's the 11 o'clock news. You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Peace be upon you. Good morning. Welcome back to the uh, Weekend World uh, with uh, Walid Ahmed and Saif Hamadi. Let's start this uh, part of the program with uh, a verse of the Holy Quran. الَّذِينَ يَأْكُلُونَ الرِّبَا لَا يَقُومُونَ إِلَّا كَمَا يَقُومُ الَّذِي يَتَخَبَّطُهُ الشَّيْطَانُ مِنَ الْمَسِّ يَمْحَقُ اللَّهُ الرِّبَا وَيُرْبِ الصَّدَقَاتِ Right, those were uh, two portions of the Holy Quran and the translation is those who devour interest do not rise except as rises one whom Satan has smitten with insanity. And the second uh, part of the verse uh, that was also uh, heard, uh, its translation reads, Allah will blot out interest and will cause charity to increase. Uh, One of the consequences of the uh, mini-budget was uh, the run on the pound and the impact on, on interest. Uh, so, to discuss um, why that took place, uh, we've got uh, Munsu Mia on the line, who's a uh, manager uh, in an Islamic bank. Thank you very much for joining us on the uh, Weekend World Show. Salaamu Mansur, are you with us? Right. So, um, working in the financial field, I mean, I'll be, I'll be, uh, Saf Hamdi is, uh, is also with me. He's an investment director, so we'll be asking his take on this as well. But uh, what is your take on the reasons for the uh, mini budget, budget causing such, uh, uh, such turmoil in our, uh, in our interest uh, markets, interest rate markets, or the money markets and the interest rates? Well, the... Um Thing is that the, the UK economy was already one of the you know has been suffering because its growth rate was much lower than the European market um, EU after Brexit and uh, there was a lot of uh, anxiety among financiers uh, and fund managers as to how the UK will um, you know be able to pay its debts because the although the um, the total debt that the UK has as a percentage of the gross domestic product is still I mean, relatively low. But <clears throat> there is concern that the UK, uh, so you say the other thing is the UK only run what they call a current account deficit. Mm. But, and funding its, um, uh, its government debt requires money to come in really from, from abroad. Okay, because most of the uh, local uh, funds managers, etc., they already have their uh, their funds already in in the government uh, bonds, etc. So, <clears throat> so the, the the issue was that how will they fund the extra amount? I mean, people talk about forty-five billion, 
but you know you, on top of that you had the, um, the requirement to fund the the gas bills okay that's about 60 or 150 billion so i mean there's a huge amount of debt that the government was suddenly going to take on and uh, although the, uh, the gas bills were understandable the the longer term unfunded amount right uh i unfunded amount means that uh, these were not backed up by increases in taxation um or some other means of the government increasing its uh, its uh, revenues to pay for the debt but they were not earmarked as being uh, be, being able to to fund that amount and they were looking for outside funders and on that basis the um, <clears throat> there was a run on the on the guilt um the, the guilt is the government bonds uh, the interest rates went sky high well i mean sky high in the sense dealt with sky high uh, mm. compared to what has they were go- going up anyway were they yeah no they were going up uh, i mean because the bank of england was tightening the uh, the supply of money by increasing the interest rates in the economy uh, for all right but the to combat the, inflation yeah to combat inflation mm-hmm. but the uh, the the fact that they had to now borrow additional amount the government had to borrow now additional amount right from investors that what they might say spooked the market right and uh, they didn't see how the government will be able to do that mm-hmm. uh, and therefore they the they started selling um they required i mean the investors then suddenly required more interest much higher interest to be able to fund the government right. uh, longer run and that that then uh, set about uh, the the sale, selling of the bonds uh, uh because people wanted to get out of the bonds uh, hmm. <clears throat> the, the you must understand what happens is you know there's an inverse relationship between the interest rate and the price of the bond was a the government bond mm. okay when interest rates rises the 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 price of the bond falls mm-hmm. okay because if you have a fixed rate of interest on on a particular bond then if the interest rate rises the price of that fixed rate bond is going to fall okay. um and that's what actually happened okay and because there was a run on that people started selling and they started then getting out of uh, and they also saw that there will be an fs crisis uh because the uk will not be able to manage uh to fund its uh, current account deficit uh with the outside world and uh, there was a run on the uk um uh, sterling as well and that led to a significant decrease in the value of the pound on a very short uh, you know it, it was within a day mm, <laughs> that it just fell yeah. No, no, no. Thanks for that. Seth, how would you how would you explain this? No, I, I completely concur with uh, uh-huh. Manota. I mean, the way that he, uh, he's put it. I mean, I, essentially, I think one of the easiest ways of putting it is that if, say, for example, you take on personal debt, it's say you suddenly decide tomorrow, hmm. say, you know what, I'm going to work less hours, but I'm going going to buy myself an expensive car down the line. I'm hmm. going to go on three holidays. and uh, do this obviously <laughs> a credit rating agency is going to look at you and actually say you know what um where i was willing to uh, offer him a certain amount of debt for a cer- you know for a certain thing my risk has suddenly gone a lot higher okay so because of that risk i want i want more money uh because that that's going to be a result of uh, you know my uh, my thing so now instead of charging you 2% for that debt i want to charge you 6% because i want more money to mm. be able to accommodate the fact that you might 
might be more of a credit risk to me. Hmm. So essentially, that's what happened. And um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, the the pound dropping, I think, was not actually the the major issue. I think whilst the whilst the pound dropping, of course, it had it has an inc- incredible inflationary. Uh, risk to it, considering that we we're, we're big importers. So a lot of the things, a lot of the commodities that we use have to be imported. Um, so things like oil and gas, you know, like a general sort mm. of living requirements um, uh, require things that are actually that you have to pay in dollars for. So any drop in the pound is going to have a is going to have a, a a more inflationary uh, effect. And then, couple, but I think it's the more interesting part was the gilt market. And especially the long-dated gilts. These are seen as, you know, they're called gilts for a reason. You know, they were gold-edged in the old days. You, okay. th- that's why they're called gilts. You know, they were gilted with gold mm-hmm. um, because they were as, you know, as safe as anything could be. Suddenly, that the value of that is not as much as it used to be, and it keeps on going down. And um, unfortunately, what's also happened is the pension market. I think that, that this is another sort of part of it all many many pensions will obviously invest in the most safest uh, safest things that they can which is going to be a guilt mm-hmm. and it's going to be the long-ended guilt because that you get a certain you get an extra return out of those because they're longer longer dated plus they also fund um you know they, they fund the uh, uh, uh pension you know pension down the line right mm. Now, if those suddenly started, what I what I never realized was the amount of leverage that they had. So they were actually borrowing. So because you were only getting two percent for a long dated bond, they were they were uh, they they would actually borrow money on the short. Uh, you know, like uh, they would borrow money now to buy these long end ended dates, so that it could at least boost the amount of income that you're sort of receiving. You know, the interest mm-hmm. that you're receiving down the line. So of course, when 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 the guilt might started falling, you you ha- suddenly had this run, you know, like people were suddenly having to come out of all of these guilt markets, which made the value of them actually go lower and lower and lower um, until the Bank of England actually stepped in the following day and decided to buy up uh, £65 billion uh, pounds worth uh, of those guilts just to be able to balance the market out and sort mm-hmm. of keep some calm in mm-hmm. the situation, it's only for a limited period. Is that is that right? And then, well, no, they bought it all in one. I mean, they, they, okay. there's, a, there's a bond buying program which basically meant that they bought 65 okay. billion uh, pounds okay. of it, all which right. basically stabilized the market. All right. Uh, so how how does uh, interest uh, um, how do interest rates function in a, in a modern economy? Well, I mean, interest rates are uh, essentially they're designed to. Um, uh, tighten the money supply. So basically, if money costs more, so I mean, this is always a concept, if money costs more, then you're less likely to want to spend, you, you, you're, you're less likely to spend it because it costs more uh, to you. So um, the cost of borrowing, essentially, the higher that goes, the more likely you are to sort of stifle um, the economy and keep it under wraps. Because when inflation starts getting out of control, mm-hmm. and we've seen this in, you know, like 1930s Germany is always the uh, is always the example that people give, or Venezuela, when you suddenly have rampant inflation, um, and we're seeing it now. For example, you know, you go out. You, uh, I think milk now costs almost double that it did, you know, a year ago. Um, uh, 
certain goods are, are, are costing a lot more mm. um, uh, because of inflation, and it actually it, it is it, it burdens it burdens uh, everyone, especially when when you don't get the same wage increase uh, to try and cover it. You know, the, the cost of things are getting too much, and we're not able to think. So essentially, what you're saying is to stop to amount to stop the borrowing that you don't spend more money, right? And by not spending as much money, the demand, you know, like the demand for goods, people can't mm-hmm. uh, ramp up the prices. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm sure Mansour uh, Saab will, uh, will also uh, mm-hmm. sort of give his... But before before that, I mean, let's just hear what uh, His Holiness Hazamiza Khalif Al-Masih, the fourth said, this is Hazamiza Tainam, had said on this subject. ...and... The bank rate system has direct bearing with the prices and values. And the relationship is now growing into a mechanical relationship. Take half a percent or one percent and uh, it would show its effect on the values and prices in the market. So they are like a machine, move one part the other parts of the machine are connected through wheels and things. So, however slight may be the effect on the wheel on the other end, but still it would move. It would not remain in the same position. Similarly, the modern economy is like a highly developed machine. And the central wheel of the economy is the interest. This is why in in uh, connection with all the modern financial problems, you always hear that because America has raised her interest rate, so this is what is happening to Germany. And because Japan has not lowered the interest rate, so this is what is happening to, to Africa and uh, European economy and so on and so forth. So they are continents apart, yet a small fluctuation in the interest rate is adversely affecting or favorably affecting the economy of some other country and their own as well, of course. So this is a very complicated affair which should not be discussed at this session. But uh, by illustrating um, certain examples how this this affects the other parts of the economy, this can be proved and you can ask any uh, student of economics this is exactly what happens. I mean, there is no debate about it. Right. So that was his holiness, as Amir Tainamid, the late as Amir Tainamid, uh, um, opining on this particular uh, topic. <coughs> uh, I think thirty years ago, but I suppose it's it's very relevant even today to this day. Uh, Mansoor, you you uh, you work uh, in Islamic banking, uh, and it's Islamic banking would of course. Uh, prohibit the use of interest, but how do you uh, achieve that? How do you operate in a in a modern interest-ridden economy uh, when that is uh, when that is the remit you have? Okay, I think uh, let me just first of all clarify. Yeah. Okay, for your listeners, um, the word that is used, and when you um, read the the passage from the Holy Quran earlier on. Mm. The word used um, in the Quran is riba. Mm-hmm. Okay, the word actually means an increase. Okay, an increase over time. Okay. Now, this has been uh, taken to mean an increase in an amount paid 
assessed from pay to an amount borrowed, i.e. money on money without any underlying transaction. Okay. So that is actually the, I mean, this is, I mean, there are so many discussions about what actually rebound is, but this is, this is basically a very, very simple explanation of what it is. Okay. And in the Holy Quran, the, um, we are informed, okay, the Holy Quran states, right, that riba is forbidden, as you, you know, stated uh, 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 alone, okay, whereas trade is, is allowed. Hmm. So the question is, what's the difference between trade and um, and uh, borrowing money? <clears throat> the trade requires uh, basically two parties to get involved in generating a certain amount of economic activity. Okay, when you buy and sell, or you invest, right? so that that generates a level of activity in in the economy. Um, whereas if you just give a loan to another party. Right. You're not actually, um, that person might be using the money for, for generating something, but I mean, he's not giving you a return, which is based on the activity that he's undertaking. So another aspect of, um, of, of RIBA is that you are not taking any, any risk on the underlying transaction that's, that takes place. Whereas for, um, for avoid RIBA, you need to take a level of uh, a risk in, 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 in that underlying transaction. Mm -hmm. Okay. And as we, um, <clears throat> as you're saying, I mean, the, 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 the whole process uh, is what I said, that uh, a time will come upon people in which they will consume usury while interested. Okay. Um, and somebody asked him, uh, all the people, the whole process then said, Whoever does not consume it will be affected by its dust. So, as um, uh, 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 just uh, 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 in the message said, right? I mean, all the economies are are affected by this. Okay, I mean, we we live in an interest-based economy, um, and monetary. Uh, I think we didn't touch about. I mean, that's going to go a bit more into technical technicalities when we talk about monetary policy and fiscal policy. But monetary policy is used by the central banks as a means of controlling the uh, employment and inflation. Okay, and although a lot of studies have been done by Islamic scholars of late uh, to show that you don't need to have a monetary policy. Uh, based on interest that will um, that will generate growth and uh, and uh, and employment, or will you can adjust the level of growth and uh, and employment in the economy. In fact, uh, you probably know that <clears throat> for the last decade or so, right, a lot of the economies were running on zero interest rate, in fact, negative interest rate. And Japan, even today, is on a very low interest rate and has been on a very low interest rate for a long, long time. Hmm. Um, so you can actually have economies. That are based on either very low or no interest rate. But can but you? How do we survive? Yeah. Okay. Go on. But I'm just. I was going to ask you as to yeah. how, in a system which does employ interest, mm -hmm. like in the British system, how do you? Yeah. How does your banking operate without uh, the use of uh, interest in that system? The way we do that is that we try to uh, get into transactions. So when somebody comes to us and says, I want funding for a transaction, what we say is that, okay, what is the underlying transaction that you want to do with that fund? 
um, we want to be part of that transaction. And uh, in order to take part or participate in that transaction, we have a number of different ways of doing that. Um, so a party comes to us, they say, like, we want to buy, I mean, just to give an example, uh, somebody want to uh, import some goods from abroad and send them uh, locally. Uh, so what we will do is that we will buy those goods ourselves, okay, and then sell it on to that party, and they they can then sell that goods into the local market. So we are actually participating in that particular transaction. Uh, mm-hmm. um, now some say, well, I mean that's that's like you know giving a loan to somebody on interest, uh, because we do charge a profit on the uh, when we on on sell those goods to that party. Uh, they say, well, this is like interest. Well, it isn't interest because the underlying transaction, we are actually participating in the risk of the underlying transaction because what we say is that we have bought the goods. If the party refuses to take the goods from us or something happens in transit or something, right, then we are actually part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. We are not uh, just lending money. We so are, you will suffer as well? We'll suffer as well. Mm-hmm. So we are participating in that particular transaction. And this is what the Sami banks are doing. I mean, there are a number of uh, different products um, or, uh, sorry, as, as Sami concepts that we use in order to participate in a range of, of transactions in, in this manner. Hmm. What do you think about that, sir? No, I mean, I, th- I, mean yeah? I think it's... Uh, th- actually, one thing I wanted to ask, Mansur, I mean, essentially, I mean, would you say that m- many of the m- products that you would sort of package up as Islamic, are they just not repackaged normal proper? I mean, you know, we saw, see all of these kind of cocoa bonds and convertible <coughs> bonds uh, in, in the market nowadays uh, of what you can purchase. And I think some of the big banks have already been funded in similar ways. Um, are many of the Islamic uh, products, are they just repackaged, um, what would you say, conventional bonds? Or is or is there a very definitive difference between them? As I mentioned, I mean, <clears throat> is it giving money, right, to some uh, one from one party to another party, and then asking them to pay you a rate of interest on that? Mm. That is a conventional means. Yes. What the Islamic banks do is that they go into the underlying transaction okay, and participate in the economics of the underlying transaction. Yes. So it's not repackaging. Yeah. It's actually participating in a transaction. So what happened when the uh, in the last financial crisis, the Islamic banks didn't get hit that much. Yeah. Because yep. they were not exposed to to all their kind of derivative market. See what has happened in these uh, with the interest rate, right? Is that as you know, Saif, that um, you got so many different now types of what called derivatives and other mm-hmm. uh, products. Uh, which are very little to do with the original idea of uh, borrowing and lending yeah. uh, uh, money. It has gone into extreme kind of uh, techniques where people are trying to, you know, make a lot of money out of paper. And in fact, I mean, you mentioned earlier about the pension funds here, why yeah. they got caught, because they actually undertook a significant amount of derivative trades yes. in order to hedge themselves for the forward, the future interest mm-hmm. that they were going to earn, and um, as a market fell, they had to uh, they had to pay in more money. Or margin calls came in, and they had they were asked to to pay those margin calls, and with they didn't have cash. So what they did was they went out and sold the the government bonds to make uh, to get the cash 
in order to pay up uh, on the margin calls on the derivative trades. Yes. And these derivative trades, I mean, I was just reading an article the other day, was that in fact most of the fund managers don't even understand what these trades are. <laughs> They're so complex. That, exactly. And that's that what I find. Happens. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that that is what happens right in in the uh, in the system here. Yes. Um, in fact, uh, the Islamic uh, scholars also did some. Um, uh, sorry, Islamic academics did some research. Found that over seventy to eighty percent of the foreign exchange market is all speculative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to do with underlying uh, trades that are taking place between countries. Yes. It's all pure speculation. Okay. And uh, if you look at the financial market, also significant part of the financial market is all speculation. Um, and it's not under, and it's nothing to do with underlying basic uh, uh, economics and and growth or you know underlying economic activity that is taking place in in those economies, and that's why Islamic banks, because they were uh, effectively hedged from these uh, derivatives and you know fantastic speculation, they they didn't get hurt too much. Mm. Yes, uh, so, uh, sorry, sorry, I just want. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to, uh, because I, I don't know what your take is on this, and uh, something that I've sort of been wondering about quite quite a lot. The even you know um, someone like Warren Buffett, who's a sort of very renowned investor, quite well known. Um, he yeah. sort of also cl- uh, said that you know because of all of the monetary policy that they've yeah. uh, that that has been placed uh, over the last uh, not just the last decade, but over the last twenty thirty years. They've essentially they've almost created like this underlying casino feel of the of the markets. Uh, that's not just the foreign exchange market; that's the stock markets, and also all with all the derivatives, because everything sort of gets pushed in such sort of wild swings that they, they've created a casino uh, mentality, uh, casino mentality uh, of the market. I don't know where you sit with that, and if that if you if you agree with that, and why we should be probably looking at a more Islamic uh, way forward. Well, I mean, Warren Buffett is, of, of course, is a genius, right? I mean, yeah. he's been investing, became a billionaire, uh, investing in uh, in in good uh, good trades over, mm. over the years. Okay, and he was one of those who I never went into when the technology, uh, when the 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 stocks of the tech companies started going wild. Yeah. Uh, you know, really high fluctuation in those those uh, prices. He never participated because he said, "I don't what I don't understand. I don't. Uh, I don't buy. Yeah. Yeah. So any derivative trades or other things that he doesn't understand, he doesn't doesn't uh, uh, go into those. So you might say some uh, probably his fund that he runs is probably much more on an Islamic basis. That's exactly. Yeah. 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 <laughs> than the other funds. Yeah, right? Absolutely. And uh, I I mean you know in investment banking right everybody is trying to look out for more better for techniques. Uh, or some really complicated mathematical techniques and algorithms and all these things that they're trying to do in order to make money. Yes. And you can't just generate, uh, uh, there's a time to which you can just generate money without uh, going into speculation and gambling. Yeah, exactly. And that's what really happened. I mean, you know, the last financial, uh, um, uh, sorry, <clears throat> The crisis. Uh, the financial crisis, right? Yeah. Because, rose, because of the CDOs. Exactly. And these were these were transactions which people never understood and now in the uk we're having this crisis from the pension funds is because pension funds have gone into transactions which they don't understand you know, and even some of the uh the investment banks that have been selling them those products they themselves don't understand exactly how this <laughs> product works 
So, I mean, that's that's the complexity of these trades is that nobody understands them, and you're just trying to you know make um, create money from nowhere. Yeah, and you can't do that. Eventually, <laughs> you get found out. Right. Somebody somebody along the line has to pay for it. Exactly. Um, and who pays for it is are the poor consumers and the people who suffered uh, in, in the market. Those uh, uh, investment bankers. Um, who have made a huge amount of money, get huge more bonuses because they have created short-term, they have created um, uh, products uh, which nobody understands. They make their money, they go off and spend their life nicely. They don't get affected, but the uh, people who get affected are the ones who actually suffer eventually because eventually the speculation doesn't pay. Right, um, Masur, coming back to uh, ordinary folk, man on the street, uh, very worried okay. about uh, those who have mortgages, worried about their mortgage. I mean, how does, I mean, if those people who want to purchase a house uh, through your bank, through an Islamic bank, um, how would they go about doing it, knowing that you would observe Islamic principles when uh, they do take a loan from you? Okay, before, before then we're starting me up for Islamic mortgages, let me just make it very clear, I... I don't work in a bank where we uh, deal with retail clients. Okay. Which so we clients? Don't, we don't retail. Retail uh-huh. clients. I mean, uh, road man in street. Okay. okay. Uh, so we are not not geared up for that. Um, there is the uh, Al Rayyan Bank that does Islamic mortgages. There are other institutions here that does Islamic mortgages. Uh, <clears throat> so just want to make that. Clear. I was speaking to Dr. Uh, Wasim Khan earlier. And he was saying that uh, Islamic banking products, as far as mortgages are concerned, are very popular. I'm just intrigued as to how they work. Yeah, the, um, they're, they're popular. In fact, they've been replicated by now by conventional banks mm. as well. Uh, the reason is that, as I said, for an Islamic uh, transaction or for Islamic funding to take place, you have to have underlying, underlying uh, trades. Now, what Islamic banks do here is they... They use two types of uh, contracts to to provide the funds for the purchase of a of a property. One is called partnership, another called leasing. Now both are you know genuine trades and they are genuine Islamic uh, contracts uh, based on those. So partnership in Islamic is called musharaka, um, uh, and leasing in Islamic uh, terminology is called ijada. Uh-huh. So they use these two techniques to to provide the funds. So what happens is that the a person, let's say, he's got, you know, want to buy a house. I mean, just for example, okay, let's say five hundred thousand house, right? He's got hundred thousand, uh, right? He can put in a deposit, um, and the Islamic bank will have to fund four hundred thousand. So they go into a partnership agreement or a masharka agreement, whereby the 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 person will take uh, you know twenty um, percent uh, right share in the property, uh, and the Islamic banks will take sixty percent sorry ten uh, percent and and oh. uh, and and eighty percent uh-huh. right uh, shared in the property, and the agreement will provide for the party uh, for the person to buy the share from the Islamic bank over the period of the contract. Let's say it's twenty five years or thirty years contract. So it will say that you know every five years or every year or every whatever period it is that the 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 person can buy up the share of the property from from the Islamic bank. So uh, what value? What what would be the valuation? Would it be the valuation at the beginning of the tra- uh, of the contract or at the time of the purchase of the share? Okay. Now, 
ideally, I mean, that's a very good question you've asked. Uh, and that's, that's something that, uh, has <laughs> that, that has been debated quite a lot because the thing is that um, under uh, pure Sami contract, okay, uh, I'll 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 I'll, um, I'll explain what I mean by that. Is I mean under pure Sami contract, right? The value at which you use the the shares exchanges hands, okay, should be the value of the the underlying uh, uh, asset, which is a property. Okay, on that data. So that's how the the share should take place. But because of regulations in the UK, I mean, I'm just talking about the UK market now. Mm. In the UK market, because of the regulations, but the Sami banks have to agree to an, a fixed amount, uh, a fixed uh, uh, um, rate at which they will buy or they will sell their share to the to the person. Right. Okay, so it is fixed the, from the beginning. The second thing is that the um, so that is to take care of the, the the overall purchase of the property what the sami banks then do is that okay we're saying we are funding 40 uh, percent from the big uh, sorry we're uh, funding 80 percent of the property we own 80 percent we will lease the property to you for a rental right okay so they rent to that property uh, mm-hmm. their share of the property <laughs> to the person over you know and as the as a person buys up uh, more and more shares, the the rent will obviously decrease. Uh-huh. And the basis for uh, uh, determining that rent, it could be you know any any it, it has to be agreed very clearly and set out in the contract the basis upon which that uh, rent is going to be charged. It could be a rental index. It could be uh, you know uh, banks. Uh, what they have done in the past, in order to be very competitive with the other conventional banks in the market. Mm-hmm. What they've said is, okay, if you're going to get uh, a, a, if you went out and got a mortgage from another bank and they're going to be charging you, let's say, 3%, mm. uh, right, then what we will do is we'll calculate the the rent you pay mm. to be not more than 3% of the value of what, what uh-huh. you're paying us. So what they will do is they, they will try to be competitive and on mm-hmm. that basis they will fix a rate Mm-hmm. Uh, or the rental, which is not uh, onerous on the person and is as competitive in the market as possible. Mm-hmm. Okay, ideally, I mean, mm-hmm. on an ideal basis, how the Sami banks, okay, and in some countries they do that, right? They they use a, a rental base. Okay, so this okay, what is the rental market? What is the property of of of, of this nature? Right, I mean, uh, dwelling three three bedroom, four bedroom house, okay, what what is the rental for that right. in that area? And they will use that as a basis for, for uh, charging the rent on that part or for that share of the property which the bank owns. Okay, good. Okay, so this, this, this well, very well explained. No, thanks very much. I mean, I wish I could talk to you longer. Uh, we'll have to uh, bring you on, uh, on uh, another program uh, to go through this in, in much, much more detail. But uh, thank you very much. And you've explained that you do not deal with uh, with mortgages yourself or your bank doesn't. Um, yeah. But there are opportunities in this country if you go to an Islamic yeah. bank to to acquire that kind of service. So thanks very much for uh, uh, joining us today and uh, giving us uh, the benefit of your expertise. Uh, thank you very much. We have to move on. Um, and it is community news now, and let's have a jingle. Weekend World. Community News. <laughs> 
Right, uh, so we, uh, in this particular part of the program, we are retreating community, no- uh, community news in the more restrictive sense and talking about uh, a significant event that took place uh, a couple of ye- weeks ago uh, relating to the Ahmadi Muslim community when His Holiness Hazrat uh, Mizza Masroor Ahmed, head of the Ahmadi Muslim communi- community, opened a mosque in Zion, Illinois. It was a historic equation and uh, one of some significance, and here to tell us about it, I'm pleased to learn that we have uh, Imam Rabib Mirza here, uh, the Imam and Imam of the Amdi Muslim community. Thank you very much for uh, coming to join uh, to join us on the show. Assalamu alaikum, uh, Imam Rabib. Morning, Salam Peace be upon you, and peace be upon all of our listeners, uh, and Jazakallah uh, for having me once again. Thank you. Now, the, the mosque uh, I w- I've been um, uh, mentioned uh, has been constructed in Zion. When and who established this city? So this city was established in July of 1901, mm-hmm. and the founder of this city was Mr. Alexander Dowie. The crucial thing about uh, Alexander Dowie and uh, how he um, plays a significant role in the history of our community is that he uh, claimed to be Elijah Mm -hmm. and he claimed that uh, he was the forerunner uh, for the Messiah who was going to appear in uh, 25 years. So he claimed to be Elijah in 1902 um but uh, before that um he was uh, just briefly about his history um he was a scotsman um and uh, you know he was a evangelical pastor mm-hmm. and uh, slowly um he built a movement um by the name of uh, the uh, christian uh, Catholic Church of uh, Zion mm. um, and the whole purpose behind actually naming uh, this town as Zion um, many uh, of uh, those well acquainted uh, with the Bible know that um, Zion actually refers to a hill in Jerusalem uh, known as Mount Zion mm. and uh, Zion itself is also synonymous with Jerusalem, and it also refers to the land of Israel. So in this sense, he was trying to create, um, if you want to put it in simpler terms, the kingdom of God Mm. uh, here in this place in Illinois. And he actually had acquired um, around 6,600 acres of land uh, when he purchased Zion. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is just a, a very brief answer about this. Of course, there's more details yeah. about where the money came from mm. and, uh, you know, mm. the the way that he acquired it. Um, but I, hopefully this should suffice. No, 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 that's very good. I mean, uh, he was very hostile to Islam. I mean, what did he threaten to do? Now, this is, this is also interesting because... Um, from the city of Zion, he had actually proclaimed, uh, and this is mentioned in his uh, periodical known as the Leaves of Healing, 
So in one place he wrote, one of the greatest systems in the Orient is Mohammedanism. Zion will have to wipe out that blot upon humanity. Mm-hmm. May God help me knock at the fate of the Muslim before long. And he also had uh, you know, mentioned a lot of uh, different, um, or his rhetoric against uh, Islam in particular was always along uh, these lines as well. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, uh, he also prayed to God Almighty that uh, you know God Almighty should help him or God Almighty should show him the day when uh, Islam or as he would call it Mohammedanism uh, would be wiped out from the face of uh, the earth. Uh, he also mentioned, uh, and this is also from his uh, periodical of uh, Leaves of Healing, uh, he wrote that how can anyone who knows exactly what Mohammedanism is for one single moment imagine that God or man can forever stand that abomination? Mm. And he wrote, where the Muslim hoof comes, no grass grows, is the Eastern proverb. Wherever the accursed teaching of Muhammad has come, God forbid, Mm. there has been an end of all real progress. How can there be progress when one half of the people are treated as spiritless beasts? Mm -hmm. Then he mentioned that the theology of Mohammedanism is that no no woman has a spirit, the Mohammedan paradise is a place where the satisfaction of a man's dirty belly, his abominable passions, are the highest form of reward through endless ages. Mm. And he wrote that it is time that such an organized abomination as that should be swept out. So mm. these were, you know, the very hostile and mm. uh, very, um, uh, you know, the hostile rhetoric uh, that he displayed against uh, Islam yeah. in particular. How, how did the founder of the Amdi Muslim community come into the picture? So this is also quite um, fascinating because we have to look at it from this perspective that the holy founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, he was in the most remote and rustic hamlet in the Punjab of Qadian. But <clears throat> His uh, His Holiness as a Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, he would keep up to date, um, you know, with any of the allegations that were being mentioned against Islam, and uh, he came across uh, Mr. Dawi's uh, allegations and his hostile rhetoric that he had against Islam, and the Promised Messiah further actually subscribed to his leaves of healing, so that he would be aware of what Mr. Dawi was saying. Um, so it was through um, his uh, companion, Mufti Muhammad Sadiq Saab, as well, that he also came to know about uh, these uh, hostile comments of uh, Mr. Dawi. This is also uh, quite interesting, um, but this is actually the way that he found out about it, and then the further way that he subscribed to uh, you know, keep an eye on what Mr. Dawi was mm-hmm. saying in this regards. Can you describe, I mean, the prayer deal, can you come to that and describe how that came about and what happened? So, His uh, Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Masroor Ahmed, um, when he inaugurated uh, the mosque uh, last week, uh, in the inaugural reception, he actually mentioned this point because sometimes people may have this question, um, 
that why did Mirza Ghulam Ahmed challenge uh, Mr. Dawi? What was the purpose for it? The fact of the matter is that this was actually an act of compassion because Mr. Dawi said that if, you know, if I'm not a prophet, then no one here on the earth is a prophet. So, of course, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmed, who we believe has been commissioned by God Almighty to revive the true teachings of Islam and to ultimately unite all religions under one banner, he said to Mr. Dawi, uh, and these are, um, you know, my words, um, but, you know, it's the, I'm paraphrasing it. Mirza Ghulam Ahmed said to Mr. Dawi that the fact of the matter is that if you believe that, you know, Jesus is, is God and if you believe that you are correct, then let us pray before God Almighty. Rather than, uh, you know, going into any hostile rhetoric or using physical force or, you know, physical arms or beating up and killing one another, why not pray, let us pray to God Almighty that whosoever is the most truthful out of us, he should <coughs> survive and the one who is a liar should die within the other person's uh, lifetime. So Mr. Dawi, um, he gave no notice of this. But what happened was because of the way that this challenge that the Promised Messiah issued uh, to Mr. Dawi, um, it was covered uh, in the American newspapers and also it was also uh, covered in the press in Australia and New Zealand of that time. And uh, actually, uh, you know, it's a, it's a fascinating thing that the Promised Messiah in his uh, book, uh, Hakikatul Wahi, he's written around 32, or he's recorded 32, um, you know, articles that had actually published uh, this prayer deal. And, uh, you know, now there's around 166 uh, newspaper clippings um, you know, all the way from, let's say, the west of uh, the United, the east of the United States, all the way to the west, and even in Alaska, um, I think it's the the Nome Nugget uh, that was the name of the the paper there. They also published um, this prayer duel, or they gave coverage to it. Now, first and foremost, as I mentioned, that Mr. Dawi did not respond, um, but when there was some sort of uh, growing pressure. Uh, not only from the press, but also from his followers, Mr. Dawi then said <coughs> these words. And the promised Messiah mentioned that whether he directly or indirectly responds, you know, he will enter this uh, prayer to challenge. So Mr. Dawi, we can say that in one sense, indirectly, he entered this prayer to when he said to the promised Messiah, addressing him, he said, in India, there is a foolish Messiah, God forbid, mm. who writes me often telling me that the tomb of Jesus is in Kashmir. And the people sometimes say to me, so his followers, he's referring to his followers and the press, the people sometimes say to me, why do you not reply to this and that or other things? Reply, do you think that I shall reply to these gnats and flies? If I put my foot on them, I would crush out their lives and... I give them a chance to fly away and live. So in this manner, he had actually indirectly uh, entered the prayer duel. Hmm. 
Right. Anyway, and uh, as a result of the prayer duel, um, he did uh, uh, die during the lifetime of the founder of the Ambimis community in, in very, um, how can I say, um, poor circumstances. Um, we've got only a few, uh, a minute or two left. Can you tell us uh, how the opening of the mosque was received by the general public uh, last week or two weeks ago? So it was actually received in a very um, beautiful manner. Um, a lot of the comments uh, of, uh, um, you know, from uh, the surroundings, it was quite uh, very positive in in this manner. Um, just to mention something before as well that the uh, address of. His Holiness, Hazrat Mirza Musuru Ahmed, the worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, um, his address was also received, uh, you know, well as well because there could be, there could have been some sort of tension or some sort of, sort of questions raised in people's minds, and, and naturally, that because this city has historic significance within our community, we might want to you know, take over this land or we might want to occupy this city and so on and so forth. But His Holiness so beautifully reassured um, the local members that, you know, we are only here to win your hearts. We Mm -hmm. have nothing to do with any political um, ideologies or any sort of land acquirement. Mm -hmm. And the fact of the matter is, that um you know for example i'll 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 give you the remarks of uh, his mayor mm. uh, the mayor of zion where he was absolutely speechless he mm. said that i was speechless when i listened to his holiness and uh, um in actuality um you know he presented the key to the city to his holiness mm. and uh, he said this is the first time that i've actually um, met with a spiritual person. Mm. Um, then uh, another uh, guest there, they said that this message that His Holiness has given of uh, interfaith dialogue, of interfaith harmony, um, this is something that needs to be promoted in the world. Uh, and another guest mentioned that you know we're lucky and privileged to have leaders like him within the world that mm. speak about respect, that speak about love and tolerance. So this, these were the remarks um, given by the guests, and also, um, you know, the the local congress, um, um, the local congress who uh, you know represent Zion. Mm. They also gave some very fascinating remarks yeah. as well, no, um, very and also, and it was a very positive. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, all in all, it was a very positive event. No, thanks very much, uh, Imara Bib, for coming on and explaining this, uh, the background of this and the importance and significance of this particular mosque. Uh, and I wish you all the best in the future. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, great, pleasure. Right, uh, we have to move on to the sports review. Here's the jingle. Are you ready, uh, Saf? I sure am. Okay. <laughs> Weekend World Sports Review. Uh, Shahid, uh, thank you very much for coming on. Assalamualaikum. Waalaikumsalam. Thank Saf will be uh, uh, grilling you with some uh, of his questions, but before he does that, let me just ask you this. Um, uh, Erlin Haaland, um, the phenomenon of Erlin Haaland, uh, has, he, has his performance dropped? He only scored one uh, yesterday. <laughs> well, 
people, uh, Manchester City supporters or, or the world over, for that matter, will be coming used to his hat tricks every weekend, mm. and even in the Champions, the Champions League as well. So this, as you said, is a bit of a calm down. I mean, he could only score one yesterday. Yes, but, it took uh, him an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that's right. Mm. Yeah. And China, yeah, I mean, I think going back onto that, I mean, the way things are looking, they're, they're too tough a team to beat right now, surely, Man City. Oh, well, yeah, that's right. I mean, Manchester, the way they're playing at the moment, I mean, it seems as if they'll be very... Uh, I don't know which team is going to put a stop to that, the way that they're playing. And this missing link of theirs, that they've been playing without a centre for so long and they've been after Tottenham's uh, Harry Kane, uh, this must be an icing on the cake, and very much so. And this really is, I think, highlighted the Premier League start and he's taken all the pl- plaudits, you know, by su- not surprise, I would say, but I think this was something. And not to mention, he's only 22 years of age. I mean, that's mm. absolutely you know, phenomenal in, in the scoring records that he keeps breaking every week, every matches. Uh, so uh, whether or not, I mean, obviously they have a rotational system and so forth. They, they will have to have it because of so many games of the World Cup yeah. as well coming up. So, yes, you're absolutely right. That uh, Let's see how he, he progresses from here. He's only 22, as I said. Yeah, I mean, one of the things is he's not playing in the World Cup either, so he's going to be fresh, surely. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> yeah that, that's a plus for him. Exactly. What about, what about the fortunes of Liverpool right now? I mean, I think they're probably the sort of team that everyone's sort of looking at, and they just really, they, they've really had a stuttering start. They're, they're, they're not there yet. It almost seems as if they've lost before they've started this season. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, that's not weird. I mean, a few games like this, I mean, they were having a phenomenal uh, season, or seasons, I put it that way, and the way that they were playing and so forth. There were a few change of personnel. I mean, they keep talking about the fact that money wanted to go, and that's the reason he went. Mm. And I think for me, that has upset them in, in the rhythm and the way that yeah. they used to play. But having said that, they they still have the players. But there's quite a big the big match today between them and Arsenal uh, away. Uh, I think it would be a real pointer because if Arsenal win, there'll be 14 points adrift of them. And yeah. at this stage, even at this early stage of the Premiership, uh, this is really something they have to, even to get to the top four, never mind going for the uh, title itself. And uh, I think uh, the Champions League obviously is something that obviously they're also targeting as well. But nevertheless, I think the way that they are playing is not the Liverpool method we've come used to. So exactly. And, I know. I, I'm actually talking of Arsenal. I mean, they're the. I mean, probably you, one would say probably a big surprise this uh, this season so far. I mean, they're they're up there. They're up there, and yeah, it's, it's going to be quite telling today if, if if they can get a good result out of this uh, out of this game. This could be the. This could be the. Uh, uh, I don't want to use the word, but almost like <laughs> the second coming <laughs> of of uh, of uh, of um, uh, yeah. Of Arsenal. Yeah, after, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think the fact that they stuck with Arteta even when they were having a difficult time. Mm. And for me, he was a manager who wanted to build his team rather than bring in big players and big names. And they're no big stars. I mean, obviously, Saka, I think, is one of the players that stands out among the team at the moment. And uh, having said that, uh, they play to a system which is very much what Arteta has been renowned for and has really built them up in that manner. And I, I wouldn't say they're a surprise team, but I think they had been building up towards that. And uh, as you say, if they win today, I mean, they were just behind Man City because of the extra game that they have in hand. Mm. Uh, so let's see. But this, as you said, this would be a, a defining moment in, in their league, or Liverpool especially. 
So just uh, purely for the um, purpose of time, we're, we're running low, but I just wanted to get a little bit of a um, little bit of a take about the T20 World Cup that's about to come. Um, runners and riders, um, obviously England had a good result against Pakistan. Are they the team to be watching? England definitely have one of the top teams there, but Australia, you cannot count out on home soil as well. And let's not forget the record in the World Cup has been phenomenal in that respect as well. And at home, and even today, it's getting, uh, well, although England got 206 runs against them mm. today. Uh, but these are two teams to look out for. But having said that, T20 is something hit and miss for me, and a thing that still seems to be the case. There'll be other teams as well, not to forget India, uh, for that matter. Uh, and on their day, Pakistan are unbeatable as well. So uh, it's not a foregone conclusion. England are amongst the top two or three, I would say. Between the things, um, anyone that you would say an outlier that you sort of would be looking at um, um, closely? Well, uh, yeah, on those pitches, and I mean, there's so much T20 franchise cricket going on at the moment that somebody on the day can just pull you out. Mm. And if that's the case, uh, the, the, once you get through the group stages and then the semi-final, the final, the ones that really on that particular day, how they get on. But for me, I think Australia will be the team to beat. I mean, England have an all-round very, very strong team, but I think Australia will be the team to beat. So thank you so much for your time. Uh, always uh, always good to get your uh, insights. Um, thank and we'll you. Be, we'll, be looking forward to, uh, we'll be looking forward to this uh, Cricket World Cup. It looks, it looks interesting, and uh, obviously the Premiership as well. A few Absolutely. more games today. Thank you very much, Frank. Right. Um, so that uh, brings us near the conclusion of this particular broadcast. So thanks to all those who have contributed. Uh, and to our technician, Zishan Ashad, so proficient he was that he was able to manage his duties effortlessly. <laughs> so thank you to him. Uh, and thank you to all our listeners for joining in. Normal service will be resumed in two weeks' time. Uh, when uh, our boss Asanamdi will be back, <laughs> uh, and I'm sure that uh, if there are any mis uh, misgivings, I will be told. Uh, then uh, <laughs> we will be told beforehand. Thank you very much. Uh, Assalamualaikum. Here's the uh, midday news.